They need to know what those retailers are expecting, what are the fines they can get if they don't uh, produce on their contracts. So there's a lot of mm. things that they need to know before committing to it to make sure that everything's okay. Hi there, food enthusiasts. My name is Chris Freshkowski, your host again today for the Future Foodcast, where we talk with thought leaders in today's food industry and discuss the trends and technologies that will shape the future of food. Very, very happy to be speaking with Tammy Bordeaux today. She is the Executive Director of Food and Beverage Atlantic. Welcome to the program today. Thank you. So uh, I think we like on this program to, uh, as we get started, to help the audience learn a little bit about our guests. So you know, maybe before we dive into the activities of Food and Beverage Atlantic, tell us a little bit about what you were doing before you got started in this executive director role and kind of what led you up to um, jumping into this activity. Certainly, Jim. Um, so basically, I've been working in the food and beverage industry for 25 years, um, and my first roles were working in restaurants. So I worked in restaurants, and I always wanted to open my own restaurant. So I kind of went through uh, different positions um, doing so. So I was a manager of a restaurant. I took a course in small and medium businesses, and I uh, also did my course as a sommelier, so a wine specialist. Um, so being a manager in a restaurant and so on, I learned quickly that it's very intensive uh, job or career. And then um, there was a new program at um, NB Liquor that they were looking for product advisors. So as a product advisor, you'd help um, clients select their wine selection, beer and scotch and so on. So I learned a lot about other products than wine as well. And then um, I got into, uh, I was recruited actually to be a wine representative or a district manager for a wine company in Nova Scotia. So I did that for a few years and then I, I missed home. So I came back and then I was doing that part-time with another company of wine and then uh, ended up being the executive director for the Shidiac Lobster Festival and also creating two other festivals. So Ocean Festive and, and, um, and Chocoloco. So basically been, you know, every time I was in these positions, it was always to support and promote local products. So every time I started a new festival, it's like make sure that all the local products were um, available for people to try and see and learn about and so on. And then I, I started a, a little company called Taste This. It was walking food tours uh, and bus tours so that people can, it was always a surprise. So it was like, you don't know where you're going. So we'd bring them to different areas to try new foods and beverages in, in the local area. And uh, people were amazed of what we have that they don't know, right? So we always think everybody knows about my company, but really they don't. Um, they're really habit creatures of habit. So that was really interesting because people were like, I didn't know we had that like 10 minutes from Moncton or, you know, so, so that's how I got into food. It was all through these different careers of food and beverage. And then this opportunity came and one of my friends, chef, um, the Kilted Chef in Nova Scotia said, there's a position that you might be interested in. So basically this is where I'm at now with Food and Beverage Atlantic. Well, it's uh, <laughs> for those of us that don't, you know, fill these roles that you're you're working in is like it sounds amazing to be responsible for a lobster festival and 
know, a, a wine company is like, but the fact is, of course, there's a lot of hard work behind it, but it, it must be a pleasure to uh, kind of be at the event and kind of be in the center of that. Uh, sounds delicious. <laughs> yeah, it's always been delicious. And it's always nice to hear the stories behind the companies too. Like, how do they, you know, create this beer? How did they create this um, delectable dessert, like it, there's always the stories behind that makes it more, you know, people remember it more. So because we're so creatures of habit, it's always being in the front end and, you know, showcasing your products. So uh, it's really fun to, to be able to help them with that. So you, you've taken this experience and passion and sort of rolled it into the organization that you're executive director of now. Um, and maybe tell us a bit more about what that organization does and the types of companies that you represent. Yeah, certainly. So basically, Food and Beverage Atlantic, it's a nonprofit association. Uh, it did start just New Brunswick, but then we fast realized that it was a need for Atlantic. It started in 1999. I've only been with uh, Food and Beverage Atlantic for three years now, so um, still fairly new. Uh, learned a lot of ropes of exporting and so on. But basically what food and beverage does is really uh, facilitate and support uh, manufacturers in the food and beverage industries. So it could be wineries, distilleries, uh, breweries, and also, you know, bakeries, um, seafood plants. Um, we represent it all. So we have a vast um, majority. We have about 230 members now. We started at 135 when I was just starting. So we grew in three years. Uh, we, we do the support in various ways. So we help them to find new distribution, uh, visibility on TV, like the CTV, what's for dinner. Um, the distribution could be with Sobeys. We have a Sobeys pitch that we organize for, um, to get new members as well, but for members to be able to get into Sobeys, educate them of what to do, what not to do, uh, schedule the meeting with them, and then they go on and, and send the samples so that so we can try it to see if it's something that they're interested in and then they pitch to them so and then we do the food safety we've been renowned for years for the food safety training that we do and members get you know discounts for being a member of ours to participate in the food security that they need to do for their products so all in all we do also trade missions in different countries uh, to see what the needs are we send surveys and then we kind of organize events and b2b's to really help them grow and flourish. And whatever the need is, we try to create it or look where it could be found at to, to help them grow. So it seems in addition to your personal experience, you're right in the flow of all these companies in the food space and really helping them, as you said, to grow, which means you know it's essentially your mandate to be fully aware of what are the trends today? What are the trends tomorrow? And what are, you know, sustainability sounds like it's an important part of your local food system, uh, but also certainly you're involved with technologies that are helping these companies to grow and maybe recommending them and advising on them. So perfect, um, perfect uh, positioning for this podcast where that's exactly <laughs> what we're focusing on. What do you see today as some of the key trends um, with the companies you're working with? in terms of what's driving their business forward in the food space, um, what, what's hot today and what, and that you think is gonna to continue to be important you know, into the upcoming years? 
So in terms of trends for more of the manufacturing side, I would say is uh, food automation by far with all the labor issues that we are facing in every, every you know, scene that we can imagine uh, in the world. Um, so food automation is a big one um, just because of those issues and to facilitate and build capacity and so on. So a lot of companies are looking at it. Um, you know, government is really good at, at providing programs to get funding and so on, but it, it's a big investment and it's, it's hard when it's um, companies that's been around for so long and they were doing it a certain way and to, to, to make sure that they buy the right equipment that would work for them. So mm. uh, that's a big trend that you're, you're going to see a lot of more automation in the future. Mm -hmm. And we see it already with cars and, you know, so on. So it's not uh, something surprising, I would say. Um, on the other side of things, uh, trends in food, uh, a lot of um, protein-based, um, you know, um, vegetable protein-based, I should say, products coming out, uh, really healthy options, um, traceability, as you said, is the, the key, key, most important thing right now, because people want to mm. know where it comes from, you know, from farm to table, you know, where did it go? And did it get there safe? And, you know, if it's a frozen product to make sure it was frozen all the way back to, to, mm. to the retailers or to the table. So that the traceability, a lot of companies are looking at that to make that process better. And there's so many levels in the supply chain to make sure that's being done. Right. So, you know, you know, you have a potato that goes in a bag, but is the bag, the good bag for that to transport and, you know, the transport. Mm -hmm. And the, there's so many logistics in the back end that I don't think people realize that, you know, it's a lot of cost along the way too. So, mm -hmm. you know, prices are increasing. Well, there's a reason for that. And especially, you know, with flooding in BC and, and everything that's happening, the supply chain is really damaged right now. So um, prices are going up, which is natural because there's a lack of product. There's a lack of packaging. <clears throat> So that's the, the trend of traceability is really important at this point too. Okay, so that <clears throat> traceability and transparency, you certainly help with on the, call it the upstream side and working with those producers down to the manufacturers. And, and you talked about the automation that, as you said, seems inevitable given the, the sort of labor situation that is, we're facing globally these mm -hmm. days. Um, but with all of that work going into a local supply chain in many cases, and the manufacturers really focused on the quality, of course, and managing their cost. They want to provide that transparency to their customers. In fact, they're, we see customers increasingly being interested in transparency of their food, where it's coming from, mm -hmm. the quality, et cetera. How are you seeing companies sort of address their customers and support their customers to provide that transparency and trust and authenticity of the products that they're providing? Um, basically, they're really trying to support that by implementing new technology, um, mm -hmm. basically to trace all that, because it, it is a big system to try to, some are doing it right now. And it, it, of course, it's bigger companies that have you know, the resources to, to do so. But smaller companies, there's a lot of new um, startups that are designing that for smaller companies that they can afford it to to do mm -hmm. so that's how they do it and i mean 
the marketing side of things, I think they try to do that on their labels. They try to do that on social media to make sure that their customers know where it comes from, know what the process mm. is and so on. So I think they're doing it in very different ways. Um, but it's always like, you know, they tried the barcodes that, that people could scan and the story of where it goes and where it's at and where it's mm -hmm. been and what field it came from. Like there's, they can go really, you know, really deep if they wanted to. So it's all about listening to the, the customer and seeing what exactly, how far do you have to go for them to be satisfied with your story and where the traceability comes from. Do you see that, I would say, transitioning from almost a demand by consumers where I just want to know where this is coming from to also like, for example, scanning a code on a product to get something that pops up on your smartphone saying, oh, this came from that field over there from, you know, Farmer Jane and, you know, <laughs> we like that uh, yeah. to something that's maybe also more entertaining and sort of pulling customers back into the product. Um, you, you mentioned social media, for example, and a number of the sort of producer entrepreneurs we talk to they tell us a lot about their customer wants to see authenticity mm -hmm. in the product. And there, you know, used to be before COVID that it was much easier for a small producer to get out in public, literally meeting and by word of mouth spreading their authenticity of their product and they're shifting into social media. Do you see that being successful or being a trend with the companies that you're representing? So that's a good point because basically all the tastings in the stores had stopped, right? So that's a good way for um, explaining your story and getting people to taste it. And that's the most important thing is people to taste it and change their habits. You know, humans are creatures of habits and to change a habit 66 days. So imagine like changing that habit is really difficult. So you have to be front end and center to, to people to see you all the time. So they don't forget you and get in a habit of, oh, I bought this last week and I want to buy it again. Because mm. Even I do that. Like I want to support local and sometimes I buy something that's really good. And then you kind of forget about it until you see it again on Facebook or you see it, you know, on Instagram. So it's really important for the marketing side of things to really stay front center, but the tastings, like even with wine, you want to taste your wine to make sure you like it before buying it. Well, if you don't taste it, if the label's not like funky, like you like or different, like you might not buy it. But if you try it you say, oh, this is good, I'll, I'll buy it. Mm -hmm. So the marketing component is really important. And I don't know where the, like the tastings will always work because people like to try everything and people are more adventurous than they used to because they travel more too. So the more you travel, the more you taste different cultures and also, which is amazing with immigrants because now we're getting them in our hometowns that we can try the food that we can't even travel right now, right? Mm -hmm. So so it's all that link together that really works well. And, uh, but like, I think social media will always be there, but I think sometimes it's, we're overloaded with emails and overloaded with social media. So you might not see everything that goes by. Like I have probably three, thousand people on my Facebook well there's stuff I don't see because it's either I don't visit their Facebook and you know there's little things that happens with the technology that you're just like okay nobody saw it or you have to do you have to pay to kind of get the outreach you're looking for mm -hmm. and not everybody knows how it works and especially small and medium businesses uh, you don't have a marketing person on staff you know and to learn all this on your own it's it's challenging so that's all stuff that we try to help with to kind of say, okay, this is a, you know, a course to help you learn about this, or maybe have a specialist come in that we can fund that, you, you know, you, that can help you put 
something together as a plan to kind of follow after. So it's all things that we help with in the back end too. So well, it sounds like a lot of the what have become now traditional channels that frankly probably didn't really really didn't exist ten years ago. You know, face, Facebook, um, Instagram, etc. Um, these are platforms of today, but I think. Do you see those being also the primary platforms of five years from now? Or are you seeing other tech providers come in that are maybe, you know, it's it's no secret that the sort of the data management practices of some of these groups have come into question. Do you see a trend away from that or continuing to use these types of platforms? I think it's going to continue. There probably be new ones, of course, like mm -hmm. with technology, there's always new stuff, but I think it's going to continue for the next few years, for sure. And um, I think other ones will will pop up eventually and new yeah. new things like, it's like, you know, the electric car just, you know, we talked about it forever and then it popped up. <laughs> so, right. you know, there's gonna be talk probably of new things coming up, but by the time it reaches us, it might be a bit later on, right, so. Yeah, and it sounds like a lot of the companies that you're dealing with are, as you're saying, they don't necessarily have a tech team involved. So they're looking for, um, essentially technology suppliers to come in. And that's something that you help with in your organization. It sounds like you're sometimes able to fund some of the support for companies and kind of give them a pointer or even help get technology implemented that gets them exposure into the marketplace. Yeah, for us, the way it works, we don't fund as per se, but we found like we know where the funding can be get. Yeah. So um so basically we direct, we're really a facilitator. So we direct them with connections or funding that possibly they could get or um, provincial reps that can help them in certain areas. So we kind of know the ecosystem and then we just direct them in the right area to save them time instead of them going in the internet and spending hours that they don't have mm. to find the answers. So they, they email us and say like, I, I'm planning to do this. Where do you think I could find funding for this? Is this some good thing you know that's out? And we just hired our new first employee after me to kind of to kind of help those uh, members kind of even more further mm. down the road to kind of link them to the right areas to, to find funding or consultants or ingredients or co-packers. So along with this sort of these challenges and opportunities in marketing channels, if you will, um, there's the actual sales channel to between companies and the individuals. And of course, traditionally, grocery stores, specialty stores, et cetera, were the primary channels. And as we were also talking about, these are places where people can taste products and, and really develop their own passion for those products, which sort of changed about two years ago. And you know, I think we've seen a tremendous shift in consumers' willingness to purchase online through e-commerce channels. And I'm curious, you, and, you know, the part of the world where you focus in Eastern Atlantic Canada, there's a fair amount of rural area around there. How do you see these businesses adopting or not adopting these e-commerce channels? So uh, I know um, the federal government did do a big masterclass on e-commerce um, maybe a year ago. It goes by so fast, I'm not sure when, but, uh, and I think that helps because we, we did have some members that were niched into restaurants examples so the food service industry and then you know with everything that happened that just shut down so then they had to look at other opportunities and diversify you know their selling the distribution of their product and so on so a lot of them did shift to e-commerce uh, some are really being super successful 
um, the challenge there, there's always a few challenges and bumps along the way is logistics and distribution. So the cost to ship things are very expensive um, and they're just getting worse. So what we did at Food and Beverage Atlantic, we did hire a consultant to do a report to see, okay, what's going on in the logistics side of things for transportation for food and beverage in Atlantic Canada only to start. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> And then um, what would be the options to look at to help the industry on that end? So the next phase, now we're looking at that with some of the committees um, and saying, okay, what's the next step and how do we move forward? So in the new year, we're going to do a phase two of let's implement maybe this, this option and this option in a pilot project to see how it goes. Because a lot of trucks are going in full, coming back empty, right? And mm -hmm. because of e-commerce, you're delivering, you know, to houses or whatnot, but the pricing is really um, very high. So that's, you know, the e-commerce is a good thing. It opened new doors, but then, you know, one of my members had to send some spices to a, a client and then it would cost more than the product sent. So there's, mm. you know, it doesn't jive. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. So the e-commerce, it's not going to go away because I'm buying more like, on through my members online, then I go to a store to buy. And I think that shifted with everything that happened because I was even getting my groceries delivered. And, you know, you, it's like I said, like if you do it for a month or two, your habits are there. So now I'm still mm -hmm. ordering some of my beer from Nova Scotia that, you know, non, non-alcoholic beer. Sometimes I want some, well, I, I order a batch and then I'm good for a little bit. So I don't have to run to the store and right. don't want to be public too much right now. So <clears throat> I think it's going to continue for people that like it and started it. There's going to be a certain demographic that will continue doing e-commerce. And even in businesses, I don't think that's going to go away just because they see how it really did well and it's working. Mm -hmm. And uh, certainly in restaurants, we've seen this explosion in sort of the Western world of delivery, food delivery services, um, which certainly existed before, but obviously became more of a, a interest area for people that were you know, kind of quarantined at home. I think we've, we've also seen very large grocery stores implementing delivery services or pickup services. This is a little bit challenging, maybe for the small, medium-sized companies. They don't have that um, financial horsepower to get it done. Do you see in the log logistics space either it happening or the opportunity for what, what I might call the Uberization of logistics, where you, you know, of course FedEx is always there, but maybe some type of distributed delivery systems that are almost like. You know, you have a supplier that's selling lobster, you just get on this website and send out three packs of lobster via that service. Is it happening or do you or not? Yeah, it is happening. Um, and if a lot of when I did that report, well, when we did this report and I was talking to different distributors and all that, and there's quite a lot of people that are looking into doing it. And I'm trying to bring all these uh, companies to collaborate and see how we can work and create something that's a pilot project. So basically, I think that restaurants really pivoted uh, during COVID and they they were offering like meals to go, which they never mm -hmm. did before, uh, or they would buy their product that they would use in their restaurant and make boxes that you could buy. So example, if they use chicken in their restaurant and they use pasta or they use um, they would buy it in bulk, make boxes, and then sell it as a package as a grocery store. Mm -hmm. 
So they really changed the way of thinking, even in restaurants, which was really incredible that they did that. So they, you know, and they were selling sometimes even more when they were just doing takeout because they don't have all the overhead, right, of the staff mm. and so on. So they they did special, you know. So the delivery side of things, I think, um, even with Amazon right now, I see it like I bought a few things on Amazon. I'm renovating a house, so I'm buying like knobs that I have to find old fashioned knobs. Mm-hmm. Well, I can't just find that everywhere. But it's people delivering it. It's not even a company. So you you see it already that, you know, some people are saying, you know what, I'm jumping on this bag wagon and offering my services as a delivery. And, you know, it's really interesting. Yeah. It, it seems like there could be also a natural extension of this transparency, traceability of food products, because once it, you know, it's one thing if it goes out through FedEx, there is a pretty clear link there. Mm-hmm. But if it's then, if this evolves to, you know, I might in my free time be just delivering, you know, produce from the farmer's market. Um, but who do you see, I, I could imagine that that traceability going from a package, you know, a, a basket of tomatoes that goes along so somebody can know when it's delivered by the Uber of mm-hmm. logistics, that it actually also came from Farmer Jane and there's some mm-hmm. trust and transparency there. Um, I'm curious, have you seen any of that type of thing emerging? Uh, I didn't see that emerge yet. Like, I think food safety is crucial. And Mm. I think companies know, like, we're talking about, you know, delivery of meals right now, which is different than, you know, um, uh, like some products that maybe be more delicate or whatnot. But I think the companies are going to be cautious to who they're going to use as their distributor to, to mm-hmm. make sure they have all the certifications and they, they have, you know, the certain temperature in their van for frozen or, you know, fresh food. So they, I don't think they're just not going to use anybody. Uh, I think meal services, is a bit different for some reason right mm-hmm. now in my head, but like for stuff that, you know, are perishables or, you know, shelf stable is not as an issue right because it's shelf stable you don't need to temperature control it but when it comes to frozen or fresh or stuff like that they will be cautious Mm -hmm. because it can get really (laughs) in a bad situation yeah and you you touched on something that i guess this all these topics sort of skirt around but food safety um and how is that something that you and your organization get involved with and supporting your companies? So food safety, we offer probably 20 to 30 food safety courses a year, um, depending on what the needs are and so on. Uh, There's different certifications that you need for different things. So if you're in the province, you need a certain certification. If you go out of province, it could be another one. If you go international, and and it all depends who you sell to, right? So and it's a lot of work and it's a lot of money to get certified for certain programs. So, you know, uh, it's for members like companies to do this. You have to make sure that you have the customer for it because you don't want to spend fifteen, twenty thousand dollars to get, you know, certified and then you don't have the customers. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, sometimes it's the egg before the horse or, you know, the chart before the horse or whatnot. But it's it is what it is. But that's how we do it. And if you're a member, you do get a discount on our training. And uh, if you're a non-member, you can still take the training. It's just a little bit higher in mm-hmm. cost. So really once a year, once every two years, we do um, survey or needs assessment of what the needs are out there. And then we have specialists that are certified to give the courses um, to help um, yeah. educate them and so on. So certified. on the safety side, it sounds like these types of certifications are really regulatory hurdles that companies need to get over to 
or market entry, or essentially market entry barriers. Yes, um, it, is. Mm -hmm. it, it seems, you know, there's other types of um, quality stamps of approval, if you will. Michelin stars is a, a well-known example mm. where, you know, that's, it's really all about marketing at that point and the quality of what you're doing. Do you, as again, looking at tra traceability and transparency, I could foresee a future where the types of quality or sorry, the food safety training and certifications that you're facilitating might also be a, a stamp of approval for, you know, if I'm getting my um, cheese delivered by from a really nice boutique craft cheese producer, I might be further encouraged if there is a stamp of approval quality on that or wild mushrooms. I would really love to see that that wild mushroom supplier actually has a stamp of approval for not picking poisonous mushrooms or something like mm -hmm. that. Yeah, Do you see yes. maybe an opportunity for those certifications to become more than just a hurdle, you know, getting over the regulatory hurdle, but also a, a marketing opportunity for companies? Oh, yeah, certainly. And I think like if they do sell to other retail stores, they have to have those certain things. So people don't even think about it because they know like the, mm. the retail stores don't take any food that are certified. You know what I mean? So that's not an issue. It's when if it's an e-commerce part, that could be a really good marketing tool and say, you know, we're certified, but not a mm -hmm. lot of people are educated on it. So they don't pretty much know what it is. Right. So there might be right. an educational component to be done or a marketing component on the provincial side that they need, you know, or I don't know who would administer the marketing side on mm -hmm. that, but <laughs> it would be to educate. I think a lot of things is about education and, you know, the chain of supply is really complex. And uh, I don't think, like I said earlier, I don't think people realize how complex it is to make sure everything's done properly. Like, you know, the companies need to record data and, you know, if they get, you know, um, an inspector in to make sure everything's in order and there's no recalls and, you know, there's a, a lot of logistics. The most important ones that, you know, the, um, the inspectors look at is the, the more uh, crucial ones like meats, dairy, you know, mm -hmm. those are the ones they're going to inspect more because it's, it, they could co cause more harm, right? Mm -hmm. If it's not good, but like, you know, beer, well, they might not get inspected as much because it just came in a few years ago, like the inspector, like they have to take their data and stuff. So it's not like crucial that you're, you know, you're not going to get terribly sick if it's a bad mm -hmm. year compared right. to me, right? So, you know, there's different levels of inspection and, but they still need to have that traceability to make sure like we know everything's done properly and they're using the right ingredients and mm -hmm. that they're putting on the label too, right? Right. So. <laughs> and another topic that you're, you're mentioning here, but also has kind of come up through this, our discussion is the interaction with large grocery chains and food producers um, looking to sell to those large grocery chains, which you know, we've heard from, I think, quite a lot of small to medium-sized producers. There's just a lot of challenges there. Um, and frankly, some real barriers to entry for small, medium-sized companies. Uh, but at the same time, we see the e-commerce side opening up. Uh, I'm curious, if you're looking into your crystal ball, say five years from now, could you, would you see that maybe the opportunity on the e-commerce side gives a better outlet for these craft producers, smaller producers, and they're not struggling to reach the top of, so they can just sell into a large chain where they've actually got a great logistics network that's provided by several technology companies, and they can sell through e-commerce and 
that's maybe a more attractive growth mechanism than aiming to get into a national um, grocery chain? I think people need to diverse, like they can't, they have to be diversified because if something happens with, you know, the e-commerce or the big chains, you know, you have to look at everything and, you know, not too many, but at least a few options so that if something happens in one area that you're not stuck, right? Mm -hmm. um, for small and medium businesses to deal with the big retailers like Sobe, Superstores, Costco, um, really it's not that complicated in a way. It's not complicated, but you need to be educated about it, I should mm. say. So yes. basically, like they're all of those are doing local programs to really get the most local products in their stores. You don't have to be super big to be in those stores. You just have to have the capacity, right? So okay. if you say that you're going to be selling this amount of products and you can't deliver on delivering that product, that's where the issues come, right? So the companies really need to be ready. They need to know what those retailers are expecting what are the fines they can get if they don't uh, produce on their contracts so there's a lot of mm. things that they need to know before committing to it to make sure that everything's okay but they are more than willing to work with you like to come if you present a product even if it's not 100 ready they'll say like if you do this this and this we'll look at it again so then they can go back and tweak their labels or whatever the barcode or whatever they need to do and come back and say would this work would you be happy with this and they say, yeah, but then you have to make sure that your capacity is there because if it, it, if it sells like hotcakes and you can't produce, then that's where you're going to end up, you know, losing mm -hmm. because your sales are not going to be what it is. And you have to, and because of no tastings, that's another side is that how are you going to promote your product? Do you have marketing dollars behind to, to really promote this product? So the sales are up so you don't get kicked out of the store again, right? So yeah. there's a lot of different things that they have to think about, but I think it's all about balance. Like I think if you do e-commerce and it depends on your product too, like if you have a product that can go, don't put your eggs in the same basket, just make sure you get a little bit diversified and then whatever works for you. Sometimes it could just be one Avenue, but most of the time it's always good to have diversification. Yeah, certainly. So, you know, kind of going back to the beginning of our discussion, you know, your organization, food and beverage Atlantic, really is in the middle of trends and it's, it's literally a job to help companies understand and sort of perform to these trends to grow their businesses. Um, if you were to look forward two or three years, do you, what do you see being sort of the interesting and new um, both trends and the, you know, the work that you're doing in your organization to help your participating companies kind of be leaders in, in the food space following those new trends? Um, new trends, I think companies need to think outside the box too. like moving forward is like, you know, if you create a nice label and it's all about, you know, the cottage that you pick these grapes at or whatever, and then you go to a different market, it's like a new business plan. You have mm -hmm. to analyze everything, right? So the trends is all about reading every niche that you're going to look into because it's all different like mm. from here to Quebec to Ontario it's all different markets and they don't understand the language the same way you know like something we would say here they don't understand that maybe in Alberta like they don't even know what this means what you just put on your label as a slang or mm -hmm. something right so I think it's just the companies need to think about trends that way it's always being up to date because it changes so fast packaging sizes like you know, before, you know, you can have people that buy at Costco with big packaging, but some people just want to pick up and go and it's a small package. 
there's so many avenues that you have to look at like there's trends but there's also just looking at each community in each province or each country mm -hmm. and seeing because it's it's all different everywhere and it's not the same and yeah you know they, there was good examples of uh, sunscreen just an example that I, somebody told me and for us it's protecting against the sun but in asia it's totally a different meaning this the the sunscreen so you you really have to educate yourself and do another business plan we're going somewhere so mm -hmm. Because the trends, like even from here to Quebec, like even fashion is totally different. And we get it maybe a year after or two, you know, it, but now it's yeah. a little bit less like that because of the internet. But before that's what it was like, it, it totally mm -hmm. was not the same thing. So I don't know if there's specific trends like, you know, yeah, plant-based protein for sure, you know, healthy options, uh, everybody's gluten-free, dairy-free, like there's soy-free, like that's the big thing that's happening right now. And, and that's what we see. But um, I think packaging is going to be a big one, like sustainability. Um, mm -hmm. Right now, our companies are trying to do it, but to find the product to package it with is really expensive so mm -hmm. that's a hurdle they're trying to to, to take but that's going to continue people are just wanting to be more environmental friendly right so yeah yeah it sounds like you know everything you're talking about is focusing on a bit more decentralization um that's facilitated by technology but also the concepts of or issues of sustainability around local supply which is really your mandate is local supply and distribution outward um as and we hear this a lot packaging is really important to people in minimizing the Im environmental impact of that but like you said i heard it a lot of different from a lot of different um experts that it's hard you know it's if you're not a big company it's really hard to be you know the best in terms of you know your, your environmental awareness and um sort of performance on packaging so mm -hmm. it sounds like another great area for um, technology companies to step in and find solutions for small, medium-sized companies to so they can then you know feel good about the sustainability of their products. And then the other side of the coin is food safety. So mm. depending on the packaging you choose, doesn't mean it's going to be food safe, right? Right. You know, yeah, like that's one of those things. Stuff. Like it's... it's really not optional. I think <laughs> <laughs> this is why you know you know some of these solutions are still out there, and you know the. The tetra packs the aluminum cans etc they're out there because of safety they're proven to be safe and reliable mm -hmm. um but I, i'm sure we'll see more evolution in this area oh yeah for sure well it's really been a pleasure having you with us today tammy it's exciting to see all that's going on with the companies that you represent as the executive director of food and beverage atlantic and uh look forward to seeing more of uh i guess your project progress next year and have you back on the show again Oh, perfect, Jim. Well, it was my pleasure too. And uh, if anybody wants to reach out and have a conversation, uh, um, you know, my email is Tammy at AtlanticFood.ca, super easy, or you can call us or find us on the, the website. Thanks for listening to Future Foodcast. Future Foodcast is powered by Farm to Plate, the leading food blockchain platform. Subscribe on YouTube or wherever you listen to podcasts to stay up to date with the very latest innovations in the food industry. 